This is Word by Word Conversations with Writers from KRCB-FM, and I'm your host, Gil Manser. Tonight's conversation is with novelist Linda C. McCabe in her historical fantasy, Quest of the Warrior Maiden. Linda C. McCabe lives in the Northern California wine country with her college sweetheart and teenage son. She received a master's degree as an historian of science from Sonoma State University and loves to travel. To aid in the research of her writing, she spent a month in France scouring museums in Paris and trekking through medieval hilltop villages in that section of southern France along the border with Spain called the Mid-Pyrenees. She has been a member of the California Writers Club for more than a decade and is past president of the Redwood Writers Branch. Word by word listeners will remember we talked with Linda as one of the writers who wrote different chapters for the Sonoma Square's murder mystery, which was serialized in the Santa Rosa Press Democrat and is still available online. But tonight, we are traveling back in time to the time of Charlemagne, to the day of the summer solstice in 802 to be precise, and we are doing so with the not inconsiderable guidance from J.K. Rowling's bespectacled hero, Harry Potter and heroine Hermione Granger and their ride on a hippogriff, a mythical creature with the front portion and wings of a griffin and the rear of a horse. Linda, with that as a setup, I want to welcome you back to Word by Word. Thank you, Gil. You write in your blog that the inspiration for the novel Quest for the Warrior Maiden was all due to Harry Potter and that flying hippogriff. If I had not been an obsessive fan of the Harry Potter series, I would never have read Orlando Furioso, which this novel is uh, adapted from. I read it because I was engaged in very vigorous online debates regarding where we thought the Harry Potter series was going to go. This was between the fourth and fifth year books and also between fifth and sixth. And at that time, there was some speculation online that the hippogriff was a symbol of love and that Harry and Hermione riding on the back of a hippogriff may have been a symbolic representation of their future love, which was going to be the meaning for the series. And so I followed that clue by reading Orlando Furioso, which was the first time a hippogriff was used in literature as a character. And so I read it in context to try to see what it was, knowing that J.K. Rowling had gotten her degree at Exeter in the classics. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and you did something called, they, they refer to, for the fan fiction experts, as shipping. Yes, that's uh, slang for... <laughs> Relationship. So it was shipping, yes. I was a Harry Hermione shipper, and I actually had... uh, Say that again. I was a Harry Hermione shipper. Yes, I I shipped them. I thought they were (laughs) going to be the... uh, The couple of the future. That that the end of the book, that the series was going to have um, the power of love being what was going to... Um, allow Harry to survive. And so I had all these very wildly imaginative theories, as did many other people, and uh, that's not the way that Joe Rowling chose to go. Um, And as I read Orlando Furioso, and I remember finishing up and reading this story, I found myself crying on the cafeteria at lunchtime. Because I was just overwhelmed by the the love between the two major characters, um, Bradamont and Ruggiero, who my story 
uh, focuses on. And I kept wondering, why have I not heard of this love story before? And when it became uh, very apparent that uh, my theories on Harry Potter were not what the author intended, um, I decided to go off and do a different writing project and decided to bring this one to the public notice because everyone knows the Lancelot, Guinevere, Arthur love triangle and how tragic that is. And Arthurian legend, as as, um, rich as it is, has been done many, many times. But the legends of Charlemagne are not as well known. Mm -hmm. The Song of Roland, isn't that part of that? uh... It is... A Legend of Charlemagne, yes, mm-hmm. and that was written in the 11th century, and we don't know who wrote it. It's now an anonymous Frenchman, right. and that is based on a real um, battle that happened in Roncesvalles, or Roncesvalles, depending on how you pronounce it, and that was in the Basque region in the Pyrenees Mountains between Spain and France, and Charlemagne's rear guard was attacked by Basques, and there was a real man whose name is similar to Roland who was killed, and this was in 778. Mm -hmm. And that was the only real major defeat Charlemagne ever had. But that does not have anything to do with Orlando Furioso. Um, I thought Orlando and Roland were... Similar names. They in, are. In um, French and Italian. Roland is, uh, or Roland, is the French. Oh, Roland. Roland. And uh, Orlando is Italian. Mm-hmm. And so the legends of Charlemagne have a lot of the same characters, and it depends on who is writing it as to how the name is spelled and pronounced. And so Roland or Orlando, and uh, Rinaldo or Renault. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you open your book at a very specific spot, at a very historic time, in the end of a battle. Yes. So tell us where that is, since you've been there, since we know you've been to France and, yes. and traipsed around over the hillsides looking for these locations. Yeah. I Describe it to us. Right. Um, in, in Toulouse, that's, I set it in Toulouse um, because actually there's two poets that I'm adapting. One, there was a poem that was actually written before Orlando Furioso, and that was Orlando Inamorato, and that was by Matteo Boiardo. And both poets were wildly imaginative, and they were wonderful with their storyline, but they were horrible historians and even worse (laughs) geographers. And Boiardo had the—this is a, a battle between the Frankish— Christian forces that are defending their um, territory. Who are Charlemagne's forces. Yes. And the Frankish Empire is being invaded by North African Muslims. Mm-hmm. Were and, they the Moors? Because you refer well, to them as Saracens. Right. Moors is a actually a derogative term mm. um, used mostly in um, Spain or Hispania, which was how it was called by the Christians at that time, or Al-Andalus. Which was Andalusia, what the right. yeah, which is what the Muslims refer to it, and Saracens is a term also, not necessarily of derision, 
but the Muslims themselves would never use it to describe themselves. Mm-hmm. And, In fact, your main character, when when uh, your heroine says, uh, so are you a Saracen, he says, no, no, I'm, I'm a Muslim. I'm a Muslim, right. And Saracen means not of Sarah. So when you have um, Abraham and, and Isaac and Ishmael, mm-hmm. Ishmael was born of Hagar. So Hagar's children are also Abrahamic people, but they are not of Sarah, so they were Saracen. That's where the term comes from. Right. Right. And so Saracen became synonymous with Muslim, but there were many people that were Abrahamic that were not Muslim. Well, this this opens up mm -hmm. one of those Pandora's— And now it's an archaic term. Yeah, these Pandora boxes of language and— Right. And regions and geography and and uh, overlapping myths, yes, which you managed to sort out pretty well in here. Thank you. And um, but it's confusing nonetheless because in I think it's the first three chapters we meet fifty different people all with very interesting <laughs> names. And I figure, oh, well, these people, even the horses and the swords and the shields and the you know the draping they're wearing over their armor have right. names. Well. Uh, the swords do, and and yes, the horses. Am I exaggerating? Yeah, the the drapery didn't have a name. Well, it has a special. Okay. You, you know, you had to call it whether it was a a cloak or a kind of a dress that you put on over the whole thing. A or surcoat, a, or yes, okay. or a, a tabard, or et cetera, et cetera. Hauberk, and yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. the the armor. Um, yes, there are many names, and one of the recommendations that I had from a friend of mine who. Uh, wrote a book on Charlemagne was to try and take some of the characters' names and if they were Frankish, use a Frankish variant versus just the original Italian that the poets had used. So I chose to change Rinaldo from Orlando Furioso to Renaud de Montebon. Okay. So, yes. And I had set it, the the original battle that we see where you're coming in Rather than plop you down in the middle of a battle as it's starting or as it's going and you don't know who to root for or who to fear, is that I started it at the after the battle has already ended for the day. Mm-hmm. And so there's – Well, part of the battle. Well, yes. But yeah. I mean the the armies have separated. Right. The armies have and separated and gone there back to yes, their camps. Yes. The, the Frankish army has fled. And so you see the people that are leaving – the, the field and they're actually going to go off and start looting to lose. And my hero realizes that someone who was is, by his side okay. is Ruggiero, no longer there. Is that how you say Ruggiero, Ruggiero, yeah. Ruggiero. Um, actually, the Italian is Ruggiero. So it's Ruggiero. Ruggiero with right. a J and not the right. J. Ruggiero. Yeah. Ah. I just learned that recently. I'd been saying Ruggiero for the longest time, so it's even hard, hard for me. But okay. basically, when you're reading it, pick a pronunciation you like. All right, and go let's with stop it. here because mm-hmm. I think we need to know a little bit about this. And it's fascinating. And when he meets uh, Brother Monte, mm-hmm. he gives, <laughs> she says, Who are you? And I, you know, you, you put it down in one or two paragraphs, and you says, and he goes on and on. But he starts with Troy. His noble ancestor, Hector of Troy, who he. Ideal, uh, idolizes. Which, which remind me, I'm going to interrupt here a mm-hmm. little bit. When you read the old, you know, the old Norse or the old French or the old whatever, whenever they introduced a character, they would give you the lineage. 
Do you remember what I'm talking about? Sometimes it would go on for page after mm-hmm. so and so the son, you know, the son of so and so, the son of so and so, you know. And and I realize that's a very important part of the oral tradition. Yeah. But we don't do that today. We don't say hello. This is Linda McCabe, who's the daughter of so and so, who's the son of such and such, whatever. Uh, we just say this is Linda McCabe. Yes, and if you happen and then you to... go online and click it out. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's like if if you here, let me take out my iPhone and find out about you. Yes. But that is a big part of both poems that I read where um, Akramont, who is the leader of the Muslim forces, mm-hmm. he is descended from Alexander the Great. Right. So he finds that to be very important. I did not mention it, but one of the major antagonists, Rodamont, is descended from Nimrod. Ah, oh, really? Who, yes. Who uh, had, the evil in his family, yeah. He yeah. is descended from that, and and for those who are wondering who Nimrod was, he was in the biblical times, and he had gone up the Tower of Babel to try to challenge God in heaven Himself, right. and after that was when the the languages were all changed and and such. Well, this is such a baddie that he uh, injures or kills the horse yes. that the the knights are on, which is a no no. It is non chivalrous, right. and yes. Uh, Rodamont is a, a nasty piece of work, mm-hmm. and he did kill Bradamont's horse in a previous um, thing that you hear about it, but that did happen in Orlando Inamorato, so mm-hmm. that's why. Well, I there's a lot that. of stuff in the. I mean, I went back and you know mm-hmm. read about Orlando online and got a synopsis way back in when uh, Ruggiero. 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 Mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, an infant, and mm-hmm. his mother died in childbirth right. uh, of the twins. And he ends up going off to live in northern Africa with a mystic uh, sorcerer, mm-hmm. a uh, shapeshifter, et cetera, et cetera, who mm-hmm. sees, foretells his future. And I want you to tell yes. us a little bit about the two parallel paths. Right. This is interesting, is that many of the prophesied heroes raised in obscurity have one prophecy, and what is different is that there are two divergent potential prophecies regarding Ruggiero. And so you have dueling magical forces trying to influence which potential fate will come to pass. Mm-hmm. And so the one is that he was raised Muslim mm-hmm. and he is now a Muslim but warrior. But his mother— his mother was Muslim, and she converted she to Christianity. Converted, right. She was a warrior herself, mm-hmm. and she met his father on the battlefield. Right. And they fell in love, and she converted to Christianity. And there was um, his Ruggiero's father, Ruggiero II, was— Which is confusing, Well, because the second comes before Ruggiero, but, but we'll follow along. Right. And the first is— much older, and I don't know his story. So Ruggiero's father was betrayed, and at the time they were living in Sicily um, or in Reggio at the the tip of Italy, Mm -hmm. and the Muslim forces invaded with the help of Ruggiero Sr.'s brother. And Ruggiero was murdered, and his mother, who was very heavy with child, escaped in a boat, and she landed on the shores of Libya. Mm-hmm. And as she gave birth, Atala, 
was there and he saved the children. Um, and then she died and he was raising the children and one of them was uh, abducted. Mm-hmm. Very small. And Ruggiero doesn't even remember that he had a sibling. In fact, there's there's some parallel stories with there too because there's mm-hmm. one version in which the twins are both male and mm. the other version in which they're male and female. I hadn't heard ah, the see, you've got another the thing male, to follow up. Yeah. That's that's yeah. not what I know from either. Well, this is all from Wikipedia, so it must be true. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, I'd, I'd 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 question that source because I've read. Well, the, they're all they're, Orlando. I'll, you can look it up and, and find out. Uh, you know, follow it through, yeah. right? But uh, it's mm-hmm. an it's an amazing backstory, right? What I want to do is oh, so yeah. the, you asked me about the two um, prophecies, and right. I didn't finish that. So his the first prophecy was that Ruggiero would convert to Christianity, marry Bradamont who is also a warrior, mm-hmm. and she is niece to Charlemagne, right. that they would marry and beget a child, but he would never live to see the birth of his son mm-hmm. because he would be betrayed and killed shortly after um, she conceived. And that is what Melissa, who is an enchantress, she is trying to bring that fate about. Mm-hmm. Atala, who was the mystic who's, who raised Ruggiero from infancy, does not want to see Ruggiero— Sort of a Merlin character. Sort of. Yeah. Um, and he does not want to see that happen. And the other fate is if he does not convert to Christianity, if he remains a Muslim, that he will bring about the downfall of the Frankish Empire mm-hmm. and the defeat of Charlemagne. Well, this man has all kinds of prophecies about him because when he's discovered by the the uh, the king that's going to invade, you know, into mm-hmm. uh, Charlemagne's territory, uh, this young man is brought forth and said he's he has to be with us. He has to be in the army or right. we'll be defeated. So they have a uh, what's it called a tournament, right? Which he wins, and then they make him a knight and they give him armor because he has no money, you know, with which he's mm-hmm. from. I guess wizards don't have a lot of money. He didn't need any where they were. And, right. Yeah. Right. So anyway, that's why he has become a knight and has been knighted by the king. And uh, it's after this battle, and they're up on a hill, and they've been having some uh, hither and yon kind of. He's searching for um, his mystical friend who's missing. Bradamont is speaking with Ruggiero. And this is after the battle is over for the day, and he did a wonderful chivalric gesture on her behalf, and she they are now talking. She says, tell me how you came to serve Acremont, she pressed. I remember hearing of your father's admirable service to Charlemagne. Why are you his enemy? Acremont made me a knight. And you are a Saracen. I am a Muslim, Ruggiero corrected her. That is how my guardian raised me. Please tell me of your name and family. Bradamont was overcome hearing Ruggiero's tale of his family's history of valor and tragedy. The request for her name was a simple enough return courtesy, except she hoped, by revealing her identity, she might stir passion within his heart to match hers. Then perhaps he would run away with her and join Charlemagne's forces. That I will answer happily. I am from the house of Lyon, 
My father is Duke Aymon of Dordogne. His most famous son is the celebrated Count Renaud of Montauban. And I, she paused as she removed her helmet and pulled at the tether in her hair, am Renaud, Renaud's sister, Bradamont. Ah, and then what happens is love at first sight. Yes. Yes. So let's talk about two or three things there. One is you have that wonderful reveal, which we've seen in movie after movie, where the motorcycle rider, you know, performs some daring do, rides mm-hmm. up, takes off the helmet, and shakes her head, you know, tossing her long golden hair or red hair or whatever color hair. And we found, mm-hmm. oh, oh, my gosh, it's a female. Yes. So we know from the backstory that uh, Ruggiero's mother was a warrior maiden. We yes. know there are others... You know, in history around this time, in others' mythologies, uh, but that was, still wasn't very common. No, it was not. So how did this ha- come to be? How did she become so uh, skilled? Because we're going to read about her skill in just a little bit, you, you know, the one where the head goes flying. Um, she came from a, uh, a long family of warriors, renowned warriors, and so it was in her blood. Mm-hmm. And as a child, I, and I include this in the story later on, revealed to Ruggiero, is that she has a twin brother, um, Richardet. And when they were at a gathering up in Aachen, her little brother was going to be pulled away and given his first practice sword and shield at the tender age of three. And they were inseparable. And so the idea that they were going to separate these two children was something they they didn't like. And she didn't want to go off with other cousin girls and and go play in wearing dresses. And do tapestry. No, no, no. No. So they they both were crying and, and such. And so to mollify the children, they made a shield and sword for her. And someone was laughing at her, which lit her inner fire. And at that point, they thought that she would go running to mom as soon as someone would touch her her shield with something. And instead, she got fierce, (laughs) probably far, far more fierce than her little brother was. And Charlemagne saw that, and he thought it was humorous, but he saw in her um, the the natural-born warrior, and he instructed her to be skilled and taught, just as her twin brother was mm-hmm. in the art of war. Well, she certainly was good at it. Uh, yes. In fact, she she goes back to her house a bit later in the book, and she goes touched with disdain about one of her brothers who only shoots arrows. He's not a swordsman. It, 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 she, they, she has four brothers, mm-hmm. and two of them are... Well, actually, there's only the, her oldest brother, Renault, is a good swordsman, and the other ones are good archers, but her twin brother isn't isn't all that skilled yet. Right, right. So we're going to go on a little bit later in that same day, um, in the same, I guess we'll call it hillock, hillock, is that good, under a tree? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, in which some other riders come up, and they... Um, hit uh, Brodomante on the back of her head. Right. And she falls forward. So if you could read here, and what I want you to do is read all the way down to there. So it's a okay. long passage, but you'll okay. see why I want that much. Sure. there's a lot of material there. Brodomante used this time to recover. She had fallen forward onto her horse's neck. 
Spitting his mane out of her mouth, she sat up in the saddle and touched the back of her head. Warm blood slicked her hair. She grabbed a pennant from a discarded spear stuck in the ground, pulled up her hair and, pu- and wrapped the banner loosely around her head to absorb blood, and replaced her helmet. Matasino was my attacker. I know that bastard. He will die for this. Fury gave her newfound vigor. Raising her shield, she drew her sword and assessed her surroundings. More knights bellowed as they charged up the small hill in response to Martesino's call about a straggling Christian. Amidst the chaos, a knight attacked Ruggiero from behind by landing a two-handed blow upon his helmet. No! yelled Bradamont as she sprang to his defense. With a single stroke of her sword, she sent the villain's head soaring across the field. Ruggiero, momentarily dazed, was almost hit by the headless body as it fell forward. His horse jumped abruptly to avoid tripping on the corpse. Ruggiero turned around and locked eyes briefly with Bradamont. He gave her a nod, acknowledging her aid before he resumed his fighting. Bradamont was now surrounded by enemies and began striking down man after man with her sword. There was no time to parry or thrust— "'slashing her blade through their necks, slicing open their chests. "'She quickly winnowed down their numbers. "'Ruggiero killed her attackers as well. "'Soon the ground was soaked with blood "'and littered with freshly dead bodies and severed limbs. "'As the melee brought more men, she lost sight of Ruggiero. "'Bradamont then saw a soldier with a red shield "'bearing a griffin's head, neck, and claws. "'She knew that design belonged to Martesino, and had been watching for it. He smiled at her before turning his back and riding over the crest of the hill. She wanted to follow him, but three warriors stood in her way. After dispatching them, she left in the direction she saw Martesino go. Bradamont was unconcerned that he might be luring her into an ambush. She wanted revenge. Riding down the backside of the ridge, she came upon a small wood, Hearing movement within, she urged her horse forward. The dense fog made it difficult to see, making the uneven ground treacherous. Before long, Erebus stepped into an animal hole near a dry creek bed and tumbled onto the ground, throwing Bradamont off his back. The horse tried standing, but crumpled with a loud whinny. That's enough. All right. So this is not we. You know, anyone who's seen Brave knows. You know that that's the Disney version of the yeah the heroine. But there certainly isn't the gut and gore in that that we have here. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's pretty sanitized. <laughs> in fact, the whole opening of this book is a ground littered with corpses, where they go around and they. There's several things going on that I wasn't aware of. One thing is how you could identify who the dead person was by the the uh, heraldry on their shield and their their <clears throat> their armor or whatever you know was covering right. their armor because i always thought that that you know the same people who were in the same contingent wore the same outfits in in these stories <coughs> each of the the nobles have their own mm-hmm. standard and so it's not just charlemagne's side wearing you know one shield color right. and the Muslim side having another. These were all individual um, nobles who had their shields with their standards. And so, yes, she was – did at one point 
she did not want to look down and see who was dead. Mm -hmm. It was just something that she didn't want to distract. And, and in fact, she did so wind up seeing someone that she knew. Now, look, if we look at the cover of your old cover, because you've got two yes. covers on your book, but the one I, that you gave me has two shields on it. One is uh, a blue shield with an eagle on it. Yes. And it's round. And the other is a, I don't know, what do you call that, chevron shape? And Sounds it, good. Yeah. And it has a sort of a cross. Right. In fact, it's the cross that uh, identifies this area of France, I understand, because that was on the flag for that region. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> it's pretty obvious if you come up on, and you see these shields, who is the, I guess, who is the Saracen or the Muslim and who is the Christian? By the shape of the shield. the shape of the shield. Right. And, in fact, the silver eagle on a field of blue mm -hmm. was the standard for the noble house of Desta in Ferrara, Italy which the two poets, Ariosto and Boyardo, were paid to write these poems. and so They were their patrons, in other words. Exactly. That house, right? And so they were writing these stories, and they were having Bradamont and Ruggiero as being the ancestors of the noble house of Desta. <laughs> so... They, they knew where their butter was, uh, yes, bread was buttered. That's yes, right. yes, yes. And they, they're claiming that the silver eagle on a field of blue goes back to Hector of Troy in the Iliad. Hmm. I don't remember seeing that in any nah, movies. No, no that no. was something that they created because the, the, the Desta family had that as their standard. <laughs> so then they affixed that to Ruggiero and then affixed it to Hector. So we have a really... Uh, I mean, she's dispatched a half a dozen men just in a yes. you know, short period of time. Right. And, and that she's been doing it all day all long. All day long, right. right. So the, the body count is stacking up here around this, this young woman. Yes. yes, yes. I have no idea how many people she would have killed even that day, let right. alone all of the, the years that she'd been. Well, you kind of, you know, you get to, you give real detail and then you go, and that went on a little <laughs> bit more, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, so as you were writing. Mm hmm what were you doing in this sec now i know how books are put together you know you get you get bits and pieces that you want to see where did this part come this i'm talking specifically about the battle where rodamonte and ruggiero are are have just met i mean literally they've you know if they'd had a chance they'd have thrown off their armor and coupled on the ground right but instead they're fighting these you know other knights right and and killing them Right. I mean, this is based on the two poems, and the where I start my story is almost at the end of Orlando Inamorato. Mm. It's actually in book three. <laughs> and it's if you were to look at it and it's like, say, 500 pages, it's probably 440 pages into it where I start the story. Wow. We're going to have to stop because I need okay. to do a, a station break. Which we'll read like this. You are listening to Word by Word Conversation with writers from KRCBAFM, where tonight's conversation is with novelist Linda C. McCabe and her historical fantasy, which I might add also is blood soaked fantasy, <laughs> Quest of the Warrior Maiden. It's not all blood soaked. No. No. We're, we're going to go on from there. Because we did meet, we did fall, we had hopelessly love at first sight. Exactly. And that's basically setting up the rest of the book. Right. Because. The fates, shall we call them that? Yes. Intervene over and time after. They see each other and they get separated. They see each other. They're across the way and then they can't get together. Right. right. It is really a story of impossible love, mm -hmm. which is what the hippogriff 
to get back to. Right. Because it is a character in the story. A hippogriff was originally described by Virgil in his eclogues as the creation of impossible love because the griffins were fiercely guarding gold and horses were ridden by um, raiders to try and steal the gold. And so it was the mares and the hippogriffs actually mating and creating a or mares and griffins mating to create a hippogriff. And so you have Bradamont, who is a Christian warrior, falling in love with a Saracen warrior, and they are on opposite sides of a holy war. Mm -hmm. So that is impossible love, and they have to keep their love for each other a secret because— (laughs) Well, I yeah, sort of. They do. Well, they do, but— but they keep telling people about it. They, she, but carefully. She, um, they leave out certain things like, oh, by the way, she's a Christian or well, he's, a, he's a Muslim. Bradamont only confides in, in her, her handmaiden, maid, yeah. and, and that's the only one besides Melissa who comes to her. and Or she meets Melissa in, in a cave and finds out about her destiny mm-hmm. from this uh, enchantress. But those are her only two confidants. She does not tell anyone else about her love for Ruggiero. I'm trying to remember because I know she goes and spends a, a night or, or several days mm-hmm. with a woman who kind of takes her in and binds her wounds. And right. There's she, a big, you know, reveal. Oh, my God, she's not a young male. She's a— Fiora Spina. She, yeah, yes. that's right. But she does not mention Ruggiero. She thinks about him while uh-huh. she's there, but she never mentions that she has fallen in love and who he is. Because mm-hmm. that may come back. Right. To, and, yeah. and Ruggiero never— confides his love to her, um, to anyone either. Right. <clears throat> well, the hippogriff, let's go back to that, mm-hmm. uh, is an important part of the story in in the fact that I mentioned, you know, that, that the two were separated. Right. And there's a scene, and you can describe it for us, where just before the hippogriff appears. Well, one of the, real, one of the things that I loved about Orlando Furioso, besides having this amazing heroine, was that Ruggiero was taken prisoner and held captive in a castle. And Bradamont went to go rescue him. But there's no dragon. Him. There's no dragon no, on the outside. He's, right? he's being held um, captive by his guardian, Atala, who wants to protect him from falling in love and marrying Bradamont. And, 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 and Atala uses the cloaking device on the castle. He... he <laughs> To, to That's make a Star the, Trek reference. The first <laughs> castle he ever raised Ruggiero in, which is in um, Africa, he had that so no one could see it. Right. And his second castle in the Pyrenees Mountains, which he um, took Ruggiero, and he also started trying to bring company. So he brought lovely ladies and knights to to amuse him and keep him company because right. we're going to read about that in a little when bit. Ruggiero yeah. grew up he was just him and Atala in in the wilds and they, so she is um aided by Melissa and told how to rescue Ruggiero and first she has to get a magical ring mm-hmm. And so she gets that from this horrible young, a uh, horrible uh, little man. Can we call Rilla. that her quest? That is her quest. Her quest is to rescue Ruggiero 
and she is she is told to murder two people. Mm-hmm. She is told to murder Brunello, who she gets the ring from, and he's, who's a bad guy, so we don't. Care. He's he's a horrible, right. horrible dude. And then she's also told to murder Atala, mm-hmm. and she hesitates to do that because she knows that Ruggiero values loyalty, and so and she knows that Atala had raised him from his infancy. And so the idea that she would murder him after rescuing, you know, from him, from the castle that he's being held at, that that might ruin the love for him. Mm-hmm. So she does not murder him. And then he uses the magical steed, which he had used to abduct all of these people, the flying horse eagle hybrid. He uses that tricks Ruggiero onto the back of the hippogriff, mm-hmm. and then it flies off, and he has him go to another enchanted realm. An where, island off of India. Where he is then um, you know, held well, we're prisoner read, once again. We're going to read okay. about that time, because that's okay. an important thing, and yes. I think it's an important part of the book. There's several important parts of the books. Yeah. One of the things that happens here is you're reading along, and—, and you can. I mean, this is me. Mm-hmm. I'm reading along, and I can understand. Okay, maybe this all happened. There was a battle. These people fought. She is a fabulous swords person, and he's a fabulous, you know, champion of the mm-hmm. tournaments. And so, yes, this could happen. They fall for each other. That can happen because that's happened to me. Okay. And that's okay. And then all of a sudden, we are in this, I don't know, mythological parallel worlds, if you will, where right. where trees start to talk and and hippogriffs, you know, appear and take people off across the seas and all kinds of strange, enchanted hap- things happen. Yes. Yes. And that's the fantasy part, yes. Yeah. I, I ground this in the historic reality of the place in France, but there is the fantasy element as well. Her anger was displaced when she saw Ruggiero riding toward her on the back of Frontino. She descended the steps, taking care not to fall. This is Bradamante speaking. Yeah. Yeah. He had removed his helmet and was standing at the bottom waiting for her. As she drew near him, Bradamante felt nervous for the first time that day. She gave a shaky smile while removing her own helmet— Ruggiero took their helmets and gauntlets and placed them on the ground. "'Your hair is shorn,' he said. "'Because of my head wound,' she said, casting her eyes to the side. He stood directly in front of her and touched the nape of her neck. "'There is no trace of it.' "'It has healed,' she said, feeling her cheeks burn. Her heart pounded in her ears as she felt his warm breath upon her face.' I feared for your safety, he said as his hands moved to cup her face and caress her cheeks. I am fine, she said, still avoiding his gaze. You rescued me. I rescued my heart, for it was locked up with you, she said and forced herself to look him directly in the eye. Rogero leaned forward and kissed her. A shock went through her body as their lips touched. Their arms encircled each other and Bradamalt felt an overwhelming desire to find a quiet place where they could spend the rest of their day together without a word being spoken. 
A loud screeching noise caused them to turn as Atala's magical steed reared on its hind legs and nearly crashed into them. Bradamont raised her arms in self-defense and the beast flew a short distance away. She followed intent on claiming the creature, but it flew away again as soon as she came near. Other knights, including Gradasso, whom Bradamont recognized from his invasion of Hispania the, near, the year before, joined in the chase to subdue it. Gradasso nearly captured the animal, but its talons sliced through the air and he faltered. After several attempts, Ruggiero finally seized the rope around the creature's neck and mounted it. He smiled and waved at Bradamont. I captured the steed for you! As she walked over to claim her prize, the strange bird-horse creature flapped its powerful wings and took off in flight with Ruggiero still in its saddle. Ruggiero called out in vain to Bradamont. She stared in horror as her beloved flew off in the sky on the back of the magical beast and disappeared from view. Uh-huh. See, this this reads to me. Now, I don't know. I haven't read the original poem. Mm-hmm. Was it structured sort of like a, a Saturday morning serial in the old movies in that there would come to a place like that? Yes. Yes. And he would come to a, a cliff. Uh-huh. And then he would leave you there. Right. And then... He'd say, and when we last left Ronaldo, he was <laughs> yes. fighting Gradasso right. over here. Right. So yes, and he would go back and forth. So there were many interweaving plot lines. So when the since people most people didn't read at this time in the fifteen hundreds, is that correct? Well, the in nobles Italy. did. The nobles did. Yeah. So would they read the the these, these epic poems a lot, uh, privately, or would they have them read by a bard, or how would that be done? You know. The way it reads, mm-hmm. it seems like he would be reading it aloud mm-hmm. to his patrons. Right. But it's some of the things I've read recently is that Isabella Desta, who is the the daughter and then sister of his patrons, that she had several chapters read to her while she was pregnant. Mm. But it seemed like it wasn't a... Um, presentation, you know, I've got another canto done, right. and I'll, I'll do this canto and produce it for you, and everyone gets around and, and listens to it. So I think it was actually just read, and, it, it, and we are nearing the 500th anniversary of the publication of Orlando Furioso. That w- it was originally published in 1516. Mm-hmm. So in just over three years, right. we will be celebrating its 500th anniversary. And Queen Elizabeth I, uh, one of her courtiers, John Harrington, had translated one passage, which was kind of naughty, and was circulating it to her ladies-in-waiting. And she told him that he had to translate (coughs) the entirety before he could come back to court. Ah, which was quite a task. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, uh, that's that's exactly where I want to be. Is the is the naughty bits? Okay. All right. No. Oh. Because well, seriously, because mm-hmm. um, and that's why I was trying to figure out is who who was this was written for, and is it for uh, just the men who were the patrons, or no? Is it for the women? Is that why we have the you know this strong love? Is this uh, personification of chivalrous times, and you know like uh, Guinevere and and Arthur and Lancelot and all that were or. Is it more than that? And I think it's it's the more than that. It's almost like it's the uh, 
Well, it has a titillating part to it. Yes. 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 So we're, we're going to read a little bit about that. Sure. So we are on um, on this island where... Um, and Elsina is very much like the archetype of Circe. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, do you want to tell us about it or do you want to read it? I can do both. Circe or Elsina... Elsina Let, is, let's start out okay. where he arrives at the island, and, okay. there, and there are two beautiful women who come and escort him to uh, a bedchamber where he's supposed to. Okay, let's start <laughs> okay. there. Okay, he um, he arrives on an island and he is just parched, totally parched, and he lands and a he ties his hippogriff to a tree, and then. The hippogriff starts to attack the tree, and the tree starts talking to him. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't understand, and he, he's thinking he's so exhausted, he's been flying day, night, day, <laughs> that he's just hallucinating it. And he hears the story, and he discovers that if he is not imagining it, that the tree is actually a, a kinsman of, of Rodamont. And he says that he had been... Alcina's lover, mm-hmm. and that she, when she tires of her lovers, she turns them into rocks and trees, and surround all around him are, are her old lovers. And Ruggiero can't believe this. He thinks he's crazy. He he goes to try to escape off the island, doesn't want to get on the hippogriff because he doesn't know how to control it. Mm-hmm. But he takes the animal with him, and he comes across a fountain. And he's so thirsty, he drinks of it, thinking nothing of it other than, I'm thirsty, and here's water. And then two women come, and they invite him to go. In diaphanous gowns. Yes, beautiful silk gowns, and invite him to meet their lady, who is Alcina, the same woman he had just been warned about. All right, why don't, that's a perfect time to mm-hmm. start here, and you're going to okay. read to there. Okay. All right, and you'll see why we start there and end okay. there. Voices stopped abruptly when Alcina entered the room. She seemed as if she were gliding across the floor. Her hair was the color of white gold and styled high on her head with long tendrils, framing her beautiful face. Her eyes were emerald green, her complexion as white as alabaster, and her full red lips showcased perfect pearl-white teeth. The red silk gown clung to her womanly curves in a most flattering manner, and a ruby necklace directed his attention to her ample cleavage. I trust my hospitality has been pleasing to you, she asked. I like how you you got that throaty tone in your voice there. (laughs) Yes, extending her hand for him to kiss. In every way. I have been waiting for this moment all day long, she said, handing him a large tankard as they sat down. He picked up the strange glass. What is this made of? The horn of a rhinoceros. He lifted the vessel and drank. A warming sensation ran down his throat. "'Do you like it?' she asked. "'I I think so. What is it?' "'My finest wine. Here, taste this.' A servant, carving a roast pig, brought over a small plate with sliced meat. Her eyes gleamed as she watched him taste the pork and take another sip of wine. "'Tell me your name, dear sir.' And what brings you to my island? He frowned. I do not know what brought me here. All I remember is drinking from a fountain earlier today and being invited inside your palace. He shook his head in frustration. 
I cannot even remember my own name. She gave him a broad smile as her fingertips brushed the muscles on one of his arms. You are welcome to stay here as long as you like. And since you cannot remember your name, I shall call you Adonis. Alcina popped an oyster into his mouth as she nibbled on a vegetable spear. They ate their fill of dinner and later dessert, platters of fruit, figs, and honey-dipped pastries. She clapped her hands, signaling the start of the entertainment. Musicians with drums and stringed instruments played a melody he found intensely erotic. A man and woman stepped forward and danced in the center of the room. As the music progressed, the dancers removed layers of their clothing while touching each other intimately. Elsina motioned to him to feed her dessert. He placed a sweet triangle-shaped pastry on her tongue, and she slowly licked the honey off each of his fingers. There was desire in her eyes. He moved forward to kiss her, but was taken aback when she pushed him away. Not in front of the others, she said with a half-smile. He was frustrated. Only a few couples remained in the room, and no one was paying attention to them, because everyone else was focused on their own dining companion. The woman dancer now wore only a thin thin layer of sheer silk billowing in the air. Her partner had stripped down to a loincloth and ground himself against her while his hands touched her bare bottom. Elsina squeezed his inner thigh and breathed into his ear, "'I shall see you later tonight.' He watched she turned her back on him and left the table. He felt the urge to follow, but knew it would displease her. Walking back to his room, he heard moans of ecstasy coming from behind the numerous doors he passed. Once he entered his room, he was struck by the heady scent of jasmine filling the night air. He walked out onto his balcony and saw the dancers in the pool. They were naked and finishing the intimate dance they had begun indoors. He went back inside and paced the floor, wondering why Alcina was keeping him waiting. Just as he resolved to go searching for her, Alcina walked in through a secret passage. Her hair had been let down, and the lustrous tresses extended past her waist. She now wore a gown made of sheer red silk, revealing every nuance of her body. He rushed to her side, embracing and kissing her. Alcina pushed him away gently. "'Slow down, my love,' Otherwise you will be finished before we even get started. She handed him a cup of tea. Drink this. It is made from the ginseng root and will help you relax and improve your stamina. We have all the time in the world, my darling. You shall know every inch of my body, and I shall know every inch of yours. He drank the tea as she kissed him on the back of his neck. Her hands tugged at his tunic and breeches. He returned the favor by lifting her thin gown over her shoulders. After that, no barrier kept them from fulfilling their desires. Uh-huh. Fade to black. I wonder if that's <laughs> the part that they had, that uh, the queen had translated. Let me read this part. Bradamont had difficulty falling asleep after speaking with Melissa. She willed herself to see Ruggiero again. In her dreams, she saw him sleeping peacefully, covered lightly by a sheet. Her desire to be held in his arms grew stronger at the sight of his bare chest. Jealousy, however, reared her ugly head as a blonde woman crawled in bed next to Ruggiero. The woman kissed him and ran her hands over his body. Bradamont forced herself awake. 
Was that just a dream? Or is that the witch Melissa told me about? She sat up and cradled her knees next to her chest. How can I compete for his heart when I cannot give him that? She rocked slowly back and forth as she tried to comfort herself. Insecurities about her own beauty gnawed at her. Bradamont did not wish to sleep again for fear of witnessing carnal acts between Alcina and Ruggiero. Morning came, and she had not slept. Ah. So we have uh, jealousy yes. rearing her ugly head. Yes. But we also have, I think we need to remember this is the 800s. It's a different time and place. It's a time where chivalry is at least paid uh, heed to. Um, women are supposed to be virginal on their wedding night. Yes. Men are supposed to be worldly on their wedding night. Is that correct? There's always that contradiction. That's always there? that yes. contradiction. And you take that contradiction head on, but you kind of uh, put it in a nice little, well, he's not responsible. He's had rhinoceros horns and oysters and ginseng and all those other aphrodisiacs. So, you know, at the hands of a, of a beautiful witch who's disguised, who doesn't look like that. In right. But she had also removed his memory. That's right. So which she was, that. Yes. So he's still, in his mind, he's not being unfaithful. Right. Because he had drank unknowingly from the... Waters from the River Leaf. Right, yes. Right. So he had lost his whole knowledge. So he had forgotten Bradamont, and mm-hmm. he was just following carnal instincts. Yes. Now, this is all part of the plot of his, uh, 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 what do we call it, his, you know, the man who raised him. The, it, yes. 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 This was Atala's way of trying to make Ruggiero forget about Bradamont. And so he would be happy elsewhere. And basically just stay there until the war is over. Mm -hmm. And Uh, then come back and, yeah. So we've got all kinds of uh, interesting themes running through this book. And and Mm -hmm. you handled them very well. Thank you. uh, Let me ask you a a personal question. What part of the novel, and this is not a standalone book. No, no. I'm I'm working on the sequel. Right. Um, What part of the novel still speaks to you the strongest? When you think of this book and the time, how long did you spend on it? Uh, the first book, it took me about six years right, to write. Right. So and a significant portion yeah. of your life. Yes. What do you? Re- what was the hardest part, and what was the part that just flowed just like water? Actually, I, I did not like writing the Alcina's Island area because <laughs> I guess I'm a Broadmont partisan and didn't like ah. the idea of him being unfaithful. Mm-hmm. And we'll see, but you couch that in a, in a clever way so that yes. he's still not in his right. mind. Yes. I, I, Just his butt. Yes, right. yes. And uh, that was that was difficult um, for me. Was But once I actually got past a certain part, then it started to flow, and he had to um, release himself from her island mm-hmm. with the help of Melissa, mm-hmm. but he had to fight his way off. Well, we to, won't tell the yeah. secret okay. of, of uh, the okay. witch, okay? Okay. All right, because it is a big reveal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what advice do you have to other writers? Should they start out doing fan fiction? Well, yes, I did do that. Uh, is is to see if you have the um, talent and stamina to do a full length novel, mm-hmm. and which is why I actually did the fifth year um, of Harry Potter. 
um, before the fifth year book was published, and that was using my theories and to see whether or not I had the ability to do dialogue and and settings and such and and to plot out a long tale mm-hmm. and see it through its fruition because many writers start and they can never finish and they may not even know where they're going and so to me I have everything plotted out e- even your second book oh yes, yes definitely and then as I go there are sometimes well I'll write ahead because there's a scene that I really want to to write and get down and I'm I'm thinking of it so I'll I'll have some pre-written things but truthfully I I do best when I go from the beginning to the end because although I've got it all plotted there are things that when I'm going through I start thinking about and evaluating and then I make colorful choices that I hadn't thought of when I was just merely plotting. So one advice that I that I give to people is um, take a calendar mm-hmm. of the year in which your story is set and figure out what day of the week you're starting. Mm. And think of every day. And so you know what day of the week it is. Even if you don't say this is Tuesday. Right. But I also, in my story looking at the year 802 is I know when there's a full moon and when there's well, a new Well, you start in the solstice, for instance. Right. And that was just a choice so that people knew it because Charlemagne had weird names for months. Anyway, but, I didn't want to confuse people by using those weird names of months. Right. So that's why I started it then so people had an idea that it was started in June. So that's also the longest day. So you have the most sunlight so you can go and travel further. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which really is what happens in that. Yeah. She, she goes, I assume, quite long distances, 20 miles or more, would you say? Yeah. 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 Well, it has been fascinating talking with you and sharing your book, which is called The Quest of the Warrior Maid. This Maiden. Ma- yeah. No, yeah. see? Because there, there, yes. I have two books in front of me. Mm-hmm. My book, which is the one I read originally, is called Quest of the Warrior Maid. And the new title is Quest of the Warrior Maiden. So there's no confusion right. about whether she's the way that she has to be at the time of the chivalrous. I, I right? use, Yeah, I used... Um, I, I retitled my book and gave a new cover to it mm-hmm. after a lot of um, advice from others. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I used Maid in the first version was because the poets had based Bradamont on the archetype of Joan of Arc. Right. And she was nicknamed the Maid, as is Bradamont. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what that was, the warrior maid. Right. Well, you have been listening to Word by Word Conversation with writers from KRC-BFM, where tonight's insightful conversation was with novelist Linda C. McCabe and compelling historical fantasy quest of the warrior maiden. We want to thank you for sharing an hour with us on KRC-BFM's Word by Word. Our studio engineer is Mark Fuller. Our program director is Robin Pressman. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I'm your host, Gil Manser. We invite you to tune in to our next Word by Word broadcast at 7 o'clock Wednesday evening, February 6th. Until then, may this new year bring you 365 good mornings, afternoons, evenings, and nights.